Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to The Crux. How are you doing, Gary? Hey, it's great to be here, Mike. Yeah. You know, we have a program today focused on research. We'll speak with two PR professionals, Cherry Beyer of LabCorp and Marjorie Benskoffer of Fleischmann Hillard. And the research is sponsored by PageUp, a group which is, of course, affiliated with the Arthur W. Page Society, in which our two guests are members of. And it presents some fresh insights as to the changes in the world of work for PR professionals. It should be interesting. Before we go there, though, let's go to the news. Now, in a recent episode of The Crux, Gary, you and I, we discussed what Instagram was looking at along with its owners at Facebook related to an effort to create kind of an Instagram-like platform for children, 13 years of age. and right. This past week, Instagram did something that was very interesting and might actually bring cheer to those who've campaigned against cyberbullying. Instagram announced it will allow users to filter abusive direct messaging that has offensive words, phrases, or emojis. So you never have to see them or so you as an individual don't have to Mm -hmm. see them. In its statement, the company said, we understand the impact that abusive content, whether it's racist, sexist, homophobic, or any other kind of abuse can have on people. Nobody should have to experience that on Instagram. Instagram says it will begin rolling out these features in several countries in the coming weeks and will look to expand globally in the next few months. It should be noted that two years ago, back in 2019, there was a study that showed the number one platform associated with cyberbullying of teens at the time was Instagram. And at that time, Instagram made some efforts in this direction. Gary, what do you think about this? Is, is this too little, too late, or is this a good move on the part of Facebook, which owns Instagram? Well, I I think it's a good move. And we all have seen or read about some of the results, uh, horrific results of cyberbullying, right? With young people taking their own lives or leading to mental health issues, self-harm kinds of things. You know, we had such hope for the internet and what these digital tools would bring. And we didn't spend enough time thinking about the other side of it. So I'm a critic of Facebook, Mike. I, I think they've broken a lot of trust mm-hmm. over the years and had some negative social impacts. But this to me seems good. They've identified a need, right? That they're number one in a negative way in this area. Anything that we can do to help young people deal with bullying, with cyber health, you know, kind of issues I think is a good thing. So I applaud Instagram and I hope Facebook and Instagram follow through on this. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think any step in this space is a step in the right direction. Now, another issue, our next issue is is this this past week, PR week, Mm -hmm. came out with its annual agency business report. It's been doing this for years. 
And it's always interesting data on kind of the business health of the profession and of these firms specifically. But what caught my eye this year, especially as many of us were braced awaiting the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial, was the report on diversity among the industry's largest firms, clearly stimulated by the data requests that had have been put forth in the last year by the PR Industry Diversity Action Alliance. It was nice to see actual percentages mm -hmm. for non-white workforce as well as execs for these firms for the very first time. Now, Gary, I think I have this right, but I think it was when you were Page Society chair that the industry had its first diversity and inclusion committee. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what you were thinking, but I think you put me on that committee. That's right. <laughs> uh, but you must be pleased to see the progress. I would love for you to reflect on, on the publishing of this data. And I'd love to ask you, what, if anything, should or needs to be done to prompt the agencies and maybe even more companies to provide their data in the future? Well, you, you know, Mike, I, this is an incredible step forward. I'm a big believer that the only way you're going to solve this problem, meaning the lack of diversity in both agencies and in-house teams, it's not limited to, to the agencies themselves, is metrics. Metrics drive change. They, they you know, change behavior. And What's that old adage, what gets measured gets done. Exactly. So kudos to everyone who's doing this. I, I told you the old story where it was during this period or shortly before this period when I was page chair, someone showed me a, a picture of my team, one of these photos taken from the top and said, isn't that a great photo? And there were very, very few people of color in that photo and I was horrified. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that was a metric. That was, as, you know, a, a visualization of the numbers that I'm sure were, were not great. So look, I, I think the push for change is gonna come from inside. But until you're actually measuring and disclosing, it's really hard to change behavior. You know, I did my first diversity training back in the 1980s, Mike, probably. Mm -hmm. And here we are. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah. so let's get serious about it. Let's measure it. Let's understand the dynamics underneath it. I think the Diversity Action Alliance is, is doing great work and moving in that direction. And so let's get at the reason for the issue and go after it. Yeah, you know, the other aspect of this, I mean, there were some firms that did not supply data mm -hmm. on, you know, both or 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 one of the, the variables. And I have to tell you, I, I actually think that part of this gets solved too by, by companies who employ these agencies asking some tough questions. You know, General Mills and I think Verizon and a few others a couple of years ago started to say, you know, we're not going to hire an agency yeah. unless they're diverse. Great and point. I guess maybe it should become, you know, if you're not at least sharing your data about diversity and inclusion in your shop. We're just not going to hire you. Yeah, exactly. Great point. That'll drive yeah. change. That'll drive, yeah, that'll drive change. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you talk about, you know, what gets measured gets done. You know, what gets paid gets done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so 
moving on to what I think is is one of the craziest stories of the week, yeah. maybe one of the craziest stories of the year, at least in the world of sports, is that a, a dozen of the world's richest and most storied soccer clubs last Sunday confirmed rumors that they were forming a breakaway European club competition that would, if it came into fruition, literally upend the structures, economics, and relationships that have kind of held global soccer together nearly a century. But after months of secret talks, the breakaway teams, which included, you know, like Real Madrid and Barcelona, both in Spain, and then some of the English clubs like Manchester United and Liverpool and Chelsea, and and then in Italy, AC Milan. So that got leaked. They all confirmed, but by Tuesday, the so-called European (laughs) Super League was not so super and not alive anymore. So on on Monday, and just to sort of retrace, on Monday, what happened after this got out in the media is the current league presidents cried foul. You had sportscasters, former players saying this was unfair. It was against the basic concept of com- of competitive play. And then fans, fans just yeah. lit up social media. You know, talk about backlash. Talk about, you know, making a mockery of all of this. And, and, and keep in mind, you know, European soccer fans aren't exactly known for being meek and mild anyway. <laughs> but by Tuesday morning, the Premier League clubs started to come out one by one, withdrawing from the project. And, you know, by end of day, it was done. Now, another sidelight in this was that J.P. Morgan, which was kind of the financial yeah, exactly. the financial backing for all of this, uh, they came out and actually did a big mea culpa and said, you know, they had no idea in terms of the, what the reaction would be. And the and the bank pledged that it was going to learn from this experience and said, we clearly misjudged how, <laughs> how this deal would be viewed by the wider football community. And then Standard Ethics, which is, you know, one of these European organizations that grades corporations on ESG matters, they literally downgraded the bank's wow. sustainability rating from adequate to non-compliant due to its bet on the Super League. So, Gary, you and I have both counseled major sports organizations. What in your mind was the fundamental problem, flaw, or mistake with the Super League? And then clearly the the 12 clubs that had come together thought the economics of this league would bend in their favor, but somehow they shied away in the midst of all of this noise. Uh, What should we, and, and on top of that, what should we make of J.P. Morgan's apology? Well, Mike, you know, me talking about soccer is like me talking about brain surgery. So, uh, you know, I just let's I'm going to put stipulate that right now. But here's think of this. You and I are big baseball fans. What if the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, you know, the teams, the Cubs, the teams with big money, big money owners. Mm -hmm. What if they decided they were going to break away and form a Super League? Can you imagine the reaction of of this? And to your point, I mean, European soccer fans are even more rabid probably than baseball fans. Fundamental mistake 
is mistaking these sports for businesses. Yeah. You know, in my view, Mike, you know, and if you're a rich owner, you have to understand the fan and, and the people who are in your seats and that kind of thing. And, and particularly the devotion to some of these teams, of course, and the traditional rivalries. And in that Premier League, I know there are some smaller communities, you know, that they live. I mean, they, their communities are formed around these soccer leagues. So failing to recognize that is, to me, I, I just can't understand it. And even more difficult to understand is what was J.P. Morgan Chase thinking? I mean, yeah. imagine if what the proposal I put forward, Mike, if someone came to you and you're at J.P. Morgan and they said, we want to form a super baseball league, we're going to forget about the, you know, the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Cincinnati Reds. We're going to take the top tier guys, right? It, bad. No, I don't want any part of that. So all around, I'm, I'm, I'm talking out of ignorance about soccer, but I Having seen, but, but 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 you know you're talking about something actually that is should be something that any marketer, any company, yeah, yeah, exactly. any business asks, and that is okay. Well, at the end of the day, will the customers buy the product? Right. You know, and 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 while you know, in, in some of these large cities and 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 some of these teams that have spent big dollars on these players, and they're creme de la creme, and they're always going to be, you know, in various championships and whatnot because of that commitment of of, of money and attention. Every smaller club wants the hope and desire that they can break through and inevitably some years they do break they through. do yeah and as a as a consequence I, th I think it was foolhardy and in some ways it's not unlike in in some respects to something we'll remember going back to the 1980s is the whole new coke episode right yeah exactly it's like they had even gone out and did consumer research but the consumer research was based on blind taste tests yeah. and not on how consumers bonded with a specific product or brand. Brand, yeah, exactly. And, and, and what's happened here is, you know, the people trying to organize the Euro European Super League had no real idea of whether the consumers would actually buy the product. Yeah. And clearly they got a loud you know, loud, 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 you know, a Bronx <laughs> type sound Bronx. <laughs> coming out of, coming out of the, the, the leak on Sunday. Wow. So, so mm -hmm. anyway, well, now I'm going to go on to what I know is one of your favorite topics. And it happens every time this year, this time of year, a little bit different in the last few years in yeah. terms of the way things are reported. But the proxies are all out for some of the world's largest companies. They're reporting CEO and executive pay, not in, not only in those proxies, but more specifically to regulatory bodies in the United States, the SEC. And with that are coming a slew of stories on executive compensation. Now, 
2020 was an anomaly. You know, many CEOs and top executives took cuts in pay as many companies attempted to regauge plans and reduce spending in the midst of the pandemic. That said, some multi-year performance stock payouts in 2020 based on previous year's performance could cause income for some of those CEOs to actually be higher as a result. Even with that said, there are still stories that did not easily make sense to corporate governance watchers, nor to political figures or the media. I mean, your former employer, GE, paid its current CEO, Larry Culp, a reported $73 million. And, you know, part of that was $15 million in a stock grant paid Mm -hmm. back in March, and then a long-term stock grant in August valued at over $57 million. But his actual salary was just a little over $650,000. But the New York Times really focused in on a few stories that were a little bit harder to explain. Frank Del Rio, the CEO at Norwegian Cruise Lines, in a year that the cruise line, his cruise line business lost $4 billion and furloughed 20% of its workforce, his compensation was over 36 million. And Chris Nassetta at Hilton in a year where a quarter of the hotel's chain was sent home and the company lost 720 million. The compensation for him was 56 million, although Hilton has said that the restructuring of stock rewards will actually translate into about 20 million, still a princely sum. And then David Calhoun at Boeing and Boeing had an incredibly tough year from the grounding of of its 737 MAX after a couple of crashes to the pandemic's impact on the airline industry. They were forced to lay off 30,000 workers and reported $12 billion in losses. But even in that environment, Calhoun's compensation was more than $21 million. That said, he voluntarily gave back most of the $1.4 million salary he was entitled to and took a salary of just a little over $260,000. So I give all of that and know that we've both been in the seat of trying Mm -hmm. to counsel CEOs and counsel boards and C-suites on the question of executive compensation. So Gary, two questions. Do you think we are likely to see more share owners voting down executive compensation proposals? This actually happened last month. It was non-binding, but Starbucks shareholders did exactly that. And then secondly, what advice do you have for communicators and CCOs working with CEOs in their C-suites on how should they be thinking about and shaping their own company's executive compensation stories? Yeah, I think we will see more executive compensation programs voted down. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Even with some of the good things that CEOs did during the pandemic last year, which was to give up salaries or bonuses, that kind of thing. So I I think it's going to happen. I I see Mike just following this issue because it interests me more of the shareholder advisory firms requesting or recommending vote no's, ISS and such saying to investors to vote no. And And I think with the growing power of some of these 
unions, pension funds, et cetera, and the number of shares they hold. I do think you'll see more of this going down, more of these programs going down. Look, here's the, here's the thing. I'm not sure that solving the, the CEO pay thing is among the top 20 issues yeah. that business should be working on. From a, if you look at it purely academically, however, I get the perception issue. Yeah. Right. There is no escaping the perception issue when you say somebody is making $81 million a year, even though there are contingencies attached to that. There, you know, the stock price may move in the wrong direction. They may never get it, performance metrics, et cetera. Here's my advice is don't let the board's compensation committee, don't let the general counsel write the reasoning behind what you're getting. Now, Fundamentally, I think CEOs probably need to take less, particularly in companies that, that struggle from year to year, and not just in the stock market, but in employee numbers of employees and that kind of thing, layoffs, furloughs, et cetera. Tell your own story. Don't yeah. be defensive. And there has to be a simpler way to describe what CEOs actually make. What do they actually receive on an annual basis? Bloomberg has one formula. AP has another formula. The Wall Street Journal has another formula, et cetera. The more you can do to simplify and say, here is what I actually made mm-hmm. during the year and then defend it, I think that is the way to go. I don't understand what boards are doing right now on some of these compensation packages and the CCOs have to stand up and ask some hard questions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I do think that we, this is an issue that will never go away. Yeah. I mean, CEO pay will always be higher than the average typical worker. Yeah. It is more transparent now. So I think people have to kind of adjust and use that as a bit more of a monitor. I do think companies, you know, need to think about competitive pay, but they need to align it against peers so that governance professionals have a better idea and stakeholders and shareholders have a better idea on, on how they are operating, how they are thinking about competitive pay and, and go from there. I, I, I do think, you know, there are groups like the Economic Policy Institute that have been tracking CEO pay back to the 1980s. Yeah. And they're going to continue to put out reports that show, you know, the span of pay for CEOs in comparison to the typical worker is getting wider and wider. And that's going to continue to put pressure. So I agree with you. I think it's it's an issue that's not going to easily go away. But what companies need to do and should forthrightly do is really get very explicit around that yeah. which is long-term compensation versus that which is salary and so on so that people have a better understanding and people also need to have a better understanding of what the triggers are for that longer term compensation you're here well we've got a an interesting show all about research let's go to it
Hello, everyone. This is Gary Sheffer, and, and our topic today on the crux is the future of communications. And we're lucky to have with us two terrific professionals and members of PageUp, which we'll describe here in a minute, Marjorie Benzkoffer and Cherry Beyer. In their day jobs, Marjorie is the Chief Strategy Officer at Fleischman Hiller, and Cherry is the Director of Internal Communications at LabCorp. Marjorie and Cherry will talk to us about a report that PageUp published last year, but is obviously very relevant today, Resilience and Change in a Time of Change, Research Findings on the Transformed Role of Communications. And I, I found it to be really an excellent summary of the dynamic forces that are transforming business communications almost on a day-to-day -day basis these days. Marjorie and Cherry, welcome to the Crux. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So Marjorie, you've got a lot of experience working with clients, you were a journalist, and now you're a chief strategy officer for Fleischman Hiller. Can you tell us what a, what a chief strategy officer does at a big firm like Fleischman? Sure, definitely. I love my job. So I spend about half of my time working side by side on the front line with, with clients as a senior counselor. So working on all kinds of issues, you know, whether it's a company going through a CEO transition or trying to figure out how to meet all these new societal expectations, or even just how to organize their teams and do measurement and things like that. And then, and that all comes kind of in my grounding and reputation management, thinking about all kinds of stakeholders and how they come together. And then I get to flip that on the other side and do similar work for, for Fleischmann, for us ourselves, and thinking oh, about how we're building our own plan to meet all of those needs of clients, our employees scattered all across the, the globe, employees and managers, and, you know, as with everything in strategy, writing the plan is the easy part. It's the day-to-day -day focus of really being sure, are we on plan? Is, are we doing the right thing? Should we change the plan? And then just having the chance to work with all of these different audiences on how to move an organization forward. You know, it, it, it occurs to me that I should give you the chance to talk about Fleischman today, what it is. How would you describe the agency today? You know, we are a global communications firm and rely on both. We do a tremendous amount of work in the reputation space, as well as the brand space. A lot of what we think about and we drive our teams to work on is to not work in separate silos in brand and reputation, but to bring them. We work talk about working at the intersection of those mm -hmm. two things and how to think right. about all the different different stakeholders. So a great group, an amazing leadership team, Absolutely. and a really amazing time to be yeah. working in an agency. Doing, doing this kind of work. You're not kidding. So I'm going to ask you also to do another sort of explanation here, Marjorie. Sure. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with PageUp. They're certainly familiar with Page, but this is a new group that was started a few years ago. You tell us what PageUp is, who its members are, and what its purpose is. Sure. So like you said, a number of years ago, there was a kind of realization that there was more opportunity to grow and expand and develop the corporate comms CCO role and, and the team. And PageUp are about 250 of 
the most senior direct reports of page members. And I love this group. <laughs> they are incredibly dynamic, really forward thinkers. It's a really collaborative group who, who want to share with one another and trust to talk about things that have worked and things that haven't worked. Interestingly, the group was more active and engaged last year mm -hmm. than it's ever been before, even when we were so completely time starved. And I think that's really a tribute to the community and how much members lean on each other and, and draw that knowledge and experience from each other. That's really neat the way that happened. Mike, sometimes I wish I could be a member of Page Up more than Page. Yes, you do. <laughs> so, so Cherry, tell us, tell us about your company and your role at, at LabCorp. Well, as many of you know, our company's been really on the front line of, you know, what everyone has been experiencing this last year with the pandemic. It's really great to be here today, Marjorie. Thanks for having me come and join you in this discussion with Mike and Gary. I think it's, you know, our, the work we do at LabCorp as a global life sciences leader is so important. We provide vital information to help doctors, hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, researchers, patients to make clear and confident decisions. We conduct more than 300,000 COVID tests per day and have, you know, wow. helped bring COVID-19 treatments and vaccines to market in record time. Our company doesn't usually disclose those vaccines, but I think a lot of us are throwing some of those names out there by brand name, which we haven't ever done in the past. Have, you know, have you had your Moderna or, you know, what have you? And my role is really focused on building culture, engagement, understanding of company strategy, and, and where we all can unite in our combined purpose. Yeah. I, I'm going to ask you a, a slightly different question than I had intended to, but I'm just curious because you're in this realm of internal communications at LabCorp. What were some of the changes that you saw over the last year? Well, I mean, obviously, we as a you know as a as a large corporation had to had to pivot and really adapt to people working from home. We're currently looking at plans on the future of the way we work mapping out schemes of, you know, will, will people return the same way? You know, I used to office in our headquarters in, in Burlington, actually split my time between Charlotte, North Carolina and Burlington. And, you know, going back, it'll probably be some sort of hybrid model. I'm not sure we will ever really truly go back into the office full time, I found myself really working a lot with leaders differently. How, how do they bring across their messages authentically and really trying to tap into some leaders like to go live and have events. And we had to adapt and pivot to making those virtual events happen on a larger scale. Our company wasn't typically used to that type of work in the past as people would gather and have town hall meetings in person and so on. So we had to really, I would say, up our game with technology and look to, you know, different companies to help us meet that need as we are a global player. And then, you know, other, other leaders, you know, who, who like technology and who, you know, like to record their messages. And, and we've done a lot more with video and selfie. So, uh, we've partnered with a couple of companies to send selfie kits to leaders' homes so that they can... <laughs> you know, do yeah. a lot more. And, and I mean, these are leaders that in the past would never 
have done that. So there's, there's yeah. been a lot of changing and pivoting we've had to do. Uh, that's the reason for the question, because I think that what we've seen over the last year is actually the rise of internal communications and its importance to that's the very it. organizations it serves. So that's terrific. Uh, tell me a little bit more about your experience with PageUp. I know Marjorie said that, you know, that, that the last year has been fantastic, but I, I'm, I'm just curious from, from your vantage, you know, how has PageUp worked for you and how has it maybe helped your day-to-day work? Well, I'd have to, first of all, agree with Marjorie's point in that I, I've, I've never felt more connected, even though we're not together physically. So one thing that it's proven is that virtual connections can go deep. My experience has been very positive on many levels. It's helped me to keep abreast of trends, you know, really just having a network that, you know, a phone, a friend that you can call on any number of experts in different areas as you know, a lot of us are not experts in, you know, every area. So that has been incredible. And then I was really honored to be a part of the planning committee for this year, this past year's annual conference. I had just really invaluable lessons there. I mean, when I was asked to do it, it was an in-person meeting. And so really just having to adjust and again, pivot to building that, you know, session virtually was quite an experience in and of its own with a group of like extremely talented people. It really stretched me because our company was also very in the midst of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, and I was telling a couple of colleagues this, that I think what we did last year was what some people would do in a career. I mean, for my company, we had (laughs) a pandemic, we had the, you know, the pivot to virtual, we had all of the social unrest Let's not forget that that social unrest has been there for hundreds of years. However, it became on the forefront with George Floyd, with the incidents that occurred and many others, political unrest. I mean, really just quite a a lot of communications around that. And our company also decided to launch a new brand in the middle of that. So really, how do you build out and shape your value proposition and we had to adjust and change that as well. So it was really quite the year. All amidst a world that's constantly changing. Let's dig into the research now. Marjorie, why did PageUp decide to undertake this research and how and when was it conducted? So we uh, released the report last fall and we were thinking it was a good moment in time to capture some thinking about all that had transpired over last year, and then what were the implications for all of us as we went into planning for 2021. Little did we know we were still gonna, we we were actually still in the middle of it. Um, We were not necessarily coming out of, of those, that final set of lessons learned. And so actually what has happened is the report was just a jumping off place. And we brought together that perspective And then there have continued to be conversations since then in in all kinds of different forums that have built on that thinking and some of the themes that emerged from the report, which I know we're going to unpack and and really looking at just this overall question of how do I manage the now while I think about what's next? And at the end of the day, that's the crux of what we're all trying to get to through this conversation. We like that word, the crux. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Marjorie and Terry, Mike came up with the name for the podcast, you know, the crux of the story. So he really likes it, but I'll move on. No, we like it too. <laughs> so, 
very appropriate. <laughs> oh, it's a great name. I love it. One of the report's takeaways is that communicators are going to have to adapt quickly, which we're seeing obviously in the day-to-day basis, to the changing environment and working conditions. The next normal, I think, is the phrase you use. Cherry, the report states that in the next normal, communicators will have a seat or already have a seat at many tables. And you've talked about already some of the changes you're seeing just over the past year in your work with with executives. What does it mean that communicators are going to have a seat at many tables? Yeah, Gary, I think it's, you know, really the tables are at the C-suite, our operations, HR, marketing, just to name a few. I think the resources and combating fatigue will continue to be challenges during this, you know, time of relentless change. We are currently looking at, you know, you know, building out a framework on how to address these topics, right? You know, they, they come really at still a rapid pace, which is unfortunate, but that's what we're seeing. And so, you know, you have to then sometimes put on your, your HR hat to think about what change comms is needed and how to support management shift their mindset. I think that's a lot of work we're doing at the moment is how does internal comms help to help the leader become more effective in opening their mindset and shifts that are needed with all of these different, you know, both macro and micro Mm -hmm. topics that we see. So I think we're no longer looking at job descriptions and workplace location, but I think some other changes you're seeing are, you know, activity-based working and how you allow the employee to work in the way in which that best suits them. And people I've been recruiting for a couple of open roles on my team, that's almost like a given question that they will ask now. What are companies' compensation packages? How are you how are you addressing the remote employee? Mm, and sure. a lot of those people are wanting to still remain working from home. So anyway, the seat at the table I think is taking a lot of different a lot of different directions. Yeah, Terry, that's great examples of, we're seeing this everywhere. You know, I see with, you know, my little business and clients, and we've had guests on the crux talking about this, about how they've had to change their teams, their organizations in the communications function to be really nimble and fast. But I also want to address this one point that you made, which is this living a lifetime in a year which it really does feel like it for a lot of people. And I I recall going back to the global financial crisis when I was at GE, which went on for a couple of years for us, and it was specific to us. The, The thing I look back as a leader on that is I didn't understand the mental stress this was putting on my team. I mean, we were just every day in, you know, in the bunker and this seat at many tables, I think, is something that the func- you know, people in communications have to think about. We're, we're performing at our highest value than we maybe ever have. And yet, <laughs> maybe we're at too many tables. I don't know, based on the pressure that it's putting, putting on our teams. But anyway, so great, great comments. Marjorie, I, I, the report that from Page Up notes that Many companies are relying on data, of course, to guide their decisions. And feedback is critical to see if what you're doing is actually resonating and working. And and I hear this everywhere when I'm talking to people about data, data, and from executives who want communications to bring data-driven plans to them. 
how do you go about in your in your job as chief strategy officer? How do you go about building communication channels to receive and evaluate feedback, even at your own firm? I think what I often see is that organizations have some of them, but very few of us have all the ones that we need, all the channels to get the kind of, of feedback that, that we need from all of our different stakeholders. They're the very common ones that we rely on, maybe too much of social listening or employee engagement surveys or things like that, but or brand and marketing surveys of our customers. But often we aren't actually asking the right questions in those in mm-hmm. those to get the kind of feedback that we need. We aren't asking, this isn't about NPS scores or preference to purchase or recommend or things like that. These need to get the feedback we need in this environment. We need to be asking more questions about what are your expectations? What are your experiences? And understanding that gap between the two. And then we need to be really sure that we're getting that feedback from all of the stakeholders that matter. So how are we also listening to policymakers and community Mm. leaders? How are we listening to our business partners, to the investor community, and then have all of that feedback on the table at once? And sometimes we just tend to hear like whatever is the music track that's playing at the moment. And it's really got to be listening to all of it at once and then looking at the implications across that feedback for what we need to do. So that's so smart, but that's a lot of work, right? Marjorie, you know, so, so how do you manage that along with everything else? And I ask this as a practical matter for myself, I'm always trying to, to do exactly what you talk about. And how do you balance data analysis and execution? Well, okay. So you got a couple questions in there. Yeah, exactly. I do. I'll try to. I'm good at this. I've been doing the cuts for three years now, right? So I'm starting to, you know. So I'll tackle the first one first, which is how do you do it all? And I think it's impossible for a comms function to carry all of that, all of the channels themselves. Right. Right. And, and so you need to know what are core to your function. And of course we always do well, the media listening and the social listening and things like that. But that listening is taking place in other parts of the organization. So how do we go into public affairs and say, you know, I know you're kind of doing this, this pulsing of, of community leaders, but can I add some of these questions that you're asking when the brand marketing team is asking their preference to purchase? Can we put some of our questions into that so that we're getting the feedback? Same thing with the employee piece. Like how do we re- get into HR and think about not just the annual employee engagement surveys, survey, but yeah. the employee the employee groups and, and, and different things like that. And so that listening is happening in different places in the organization. We just have to get in there, be sure we're capturing it, and then maybe sometimes changing the questions. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Thank you. That's good advice for me. Thanks. <laughs> uh, well, well, you know, and, and it all reminds me kind of what the Jesuits used to say when I was an undergrad, and they used to say that the questions are more important than the answers. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's yeah. like have 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 some have some That's insight to what you're actually going to use this data for, and create as as you're suggesting, Marjorie is 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 some 
priorities around what you're looking at, but also taking a more integrated view so that you do have, you know, the, the public affairs or government relations aspect and the community engagement act, aspect, the marketing aspect, as well as the communications input and thoughts and, and, and direction. Now, one of the communications leaders interviewed for the study said that issues management side has exacerbated the need for data and the need for understanding the environment in a much more rapid way. Marjorie, what advice do you have to get this done? What types of social listening data are the most influential in, let's say, helping to understand the environment and then in helping to design engagement efforts? So I love this question and I'm actually gonna ask your forgiveness and turn it on its head a little bit. That's that's fine. Um, fine. And I will say, first of all, before I do that, I will say there are lots and lots of great and Page Society has available a whole ComTech guide to help organizations figure out the the mechanics of which tools and things like that to use. So I won't begin to try to unpack that in this session. What I think is a a trap we too often fall into is relying too exclusively on social listening and using it as the barometer for so much more than it actually represents. And social listening is important. It's a great way to, to... hear a pulse beat and hear a certain community, but rarely is it representative necessarily of your true customer base, of all of those different stakeholders Mm -hmm. that I just mentioned. And so I think too often what I I see is companies relying on social media as as their listening tool instead of mixing it with some primary research. So then they're reacting essentially to echo chambers, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the loudest noisiest, sometimes most disruptive, and not necessarily the most representative of what needs to be taken into consideration. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying it's not always indicative and and the only tool we should be relying on so heavily for decision making. Really smart. And describe a little bit about some of the, the tools that you would use, you know, let's say you have a client and the client, maybe there's a Twitter storm around a particular issue. How would you kind of step back from that and rely on other pieces of data and information? Well, I think, I think you have to, to, to look at what's happening and, and then even, you know, even on a Twitter storm, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. like, how many people is that actually reaching? There can be some pretty inflammatory things said that can get our C-suite pretty worked up about it, but it's important to look at who is that actually reaching? What kind of spread is that having? Who are the influencers? And to always give our organizations the context of that quote unquote storm. And then I think it's important to bring into the discussion some of those other sources of of feedback that we were talking about so that you, because it's pretty easy to get wrapped up into believing that the storm is what is consuming everybody's world and everybody's (laughs) conversation. And oftentimes when we do primary research, there's this just what feels like disastrous conversation on social media. And then we do the primary research that is actually targeted at the audiences that we care about. And we find this really low level of awareness. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's where you've you just got to really 
know how to listen to the audiences. And, and again, I am not saying that social isn't a huge force shaping our society today, but if it's the only thing we're listening to, we can be tone deaf to. Yeah. Um, yeah I want to, I want to build off of that too. I think one thing we can't forget is a perfect tool is our gut. You know, you, you, you can't, you can't forget to get, you know, when, like you said, you're in the middle of, of an issue and, you know, you're getting all these feedbacks that, you know, we've got a comment and this and that. And, you know, the number one tool I go back to is my gut. And do we really need to respond to this? Sometimes we can get ourselves caught out there by responding too quickly on something we've not completely thought through. And, and, you know, you know, I think it's extremely important that companies think about with, you know, so many different topics and political and politics and social and other, other things that are happening, that when you go out there with a, a sentiment and a statement that you also have the actions to back that up. Absolutely. And, and, and so much of this is comes back to refocusing on what matters to your individual organization and what stakeholders matter most mm-hmm. and being crystal clear around what issues are most likely to move the needle for your organization. And with that in mind, you talked a little bit earlier when we we're talking about internal communications, Jerry, and you used the word transparency. How can a company become more authentic, more transparent in its value proposition? And is there now more of a need for companies and communicators to actually revisit their value propositions, given all that noise happening outside their organizations? I mean, I think it's a process you have to look at on a consistent basis, on, on, honestly, because things are changing so fast. I mean, for, for our company in the healthcare life sciences space, it, it absolutely made sense to do so with COVID-19 putting us on the map, if you will. Uh, you know, we were in a position of, of two sort of disparate or complementary businesses, shall I say. We have both a clinical research organization as well as being the largest national laboratory and so with those acquisitions combined with COVID-19, it made sense to reevaluate our brand, our brand overall and the value proposition that we offered and offer. And so I think with that, unifying the brand, highlighting the combined, the power of the combined diagnostics and drug development businesses really, you know, it required us to, to sort of, you know, recenter, if you will, uh, as one on being your source for advancing health, powering clear, confident decisions. I think for other companies, you have to, you have to decide is now the time? Do you, you know, we did the appropriate research and, uh, you know, complementing and in conjunction with some of the market factors, but you've got to look at all of those different things to be able to make that evaluation to decide if you need to change. And for us being transparent, I think it's, we're now looking to increase our diversity and inclusion efforts as we are really on that journey to build a, a you know, diverse and inclusive workplace. And you know, with that, it, it, it does require a company to think differently on how are you reporting that information out? How transparent are you being with the data that you provide externally? But I think it starts with having that set up really properly internally first, that you have the leadership behind it, that you're really building the education necessary that people understand the why. 
and how they need to shift the way in which they're recruiting, the way in which they're building talent, not just mentoring, but sponsoring employees to really through positive succession planning practices. I mean, I could go on this topic for a while, but... You had a major inflection point because of the mergers, right? Right. And and, and what's Mm -hmm. interesting is, but you thought enough to move through and think about this first that, okay, we're coming together. We need to redefine what this combined whole looks like, both from a value proposition, as well as how are we going to deal with transparency, as well as rebranding, right? And did all of those elements, as well as look at all the various audiences, because you're just talking about employees and prospective employees. So did all of these work as an integrated whole, or were there separate exercises operating in order to ultimately deliver that new value proposition and values and brand? That's a really good question. Actually, we were operating separately until we had one of the other things that came is we also had an incredible leader now. Her name is Amy Summy. She's the chief marketing officer. And having her in place, she set up also a new structure to sort of bring us under one unified way of, of communicating and marketing to the outside world. And so I think it has to really have all of those things into play that the timing's right, that you do it and have the right structure and focus that this is our North Star, that's what we need to do, and this is how we're going to go about it. So for us, all of those timings did align in the middle of the pandemic, (laughs) but but for other other companies, that might not be the right time. It It might mean you need to wait until other factors come into play and so on. Yeah, but the important thing I think here is is, is a story of alignment, right? That that mm-hmm. was That's that exactly was enormously it. helpful. Yeah, exactly. So, so Marjorie, you've got a great perspective on something that Mike and Cherry were just talking about, which is this set of internal expectations that are rising among employees, right? For companies to speak out, but also to act, as Cherry said so smartly. I was on a, a panel last week and it was really good. It was on this topic is like, when do we, when do we talk? <laughs> and I was, had the impression that a little bit, the people are more focused on the art of the statement rather than what's beneath it and what you're actually doing. So what's the, what's the communicator's role? What's the agency's role in helping companies to respond to these demands that they're seeing from a lot of stakeholders and do it in a way that is obviously additive from a social standpoint and obviously from a a success standpoint for the organization itself. I think in some ways we have the best jobs in the company. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because there is no other function in the organization that has the view that the comms function has. And that, that as leaders, we can sit and see across the entire business. We're relatively agnostic about mm-hmm. all of the different agendas Absolutely. that are within that organization. And we can see externally too. That's a huge part of our job to be, to be external looking and looking at those, those dynamics. Really, nobody else can bring that, who has that job on a day-to-day basis and can bring that perspective to the table. And so I think one of the most important things that that we can do, and 
even harder than it's ever been before, but probably more important than it's ever been before is organizations are facing these questions. What should I do? What should I say? And no matter what they do or say, there will be implications. And so as communication leaders, we can bring the leadership, here are the different scenarios, here right. are the different things that you're talking about. And every single one of these is gonna have implications. And I know we all wanna find the answer that's like the golden nugget that's just gonna make everybody happy, but, or conversely to make no choice, which is in and itself a choice. Exactly. And to help leaders understand that saying nothing is still saying something. And I think one of the things we have to do is help get leaders comfortable. Here are your different scenarios, but then I have to get you comfortable with what's gonna happen next. Because no matter what it is, there's gonna be good and there's gonna be things that are gonna make you uncomfortable. And so we have to make the choices that are right for you as an individual leader, for us as an organization and our values and for us as a business. And it's a, it's a great time to do that, but it, it, is a, it is an extraordinary kind of counsel that we can bring. Exactly, that is so smart is, is that the playing out the scenarios and helping people to understand the hard reality of what happens when you say something or do something, particularly in this country where you know the odds of ticking off half the country through any statement at this point are fairly high. And but also for multinationals too, right, Marjorie, where different cultures, different even laws and regulations are in play when, for example, you support LGBTQ plus in the United States, that might be viewed differently by your employees in other countries. And, and so I, 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 I'm with you. To me, that's a great role for the communicator. And I mean, it's so such an interesting, interesting time to be in these seats. Jerry, speaking of that, your we've you know your internal communication expertise here is something uh, I'm interested in, and particularly around the idea of something you mentioned a little bit. We talked about a little bit already, which is how do you continue to engage employees, particularly for your in the healthcare business over the past year in combat fatigue associated with the pace and the volume of things that are coming at them. And the Page Up report, I believe, mentioned some new communications practices to, to help employees feel more connected. What are they? Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've alluded to a few of them already. You know, in the past, we would have potentially, you know, sent video crews to do, you know, internal videos, or mm -hmm. we have a a studio on our campus at headquarters, we would, you know, have a script and, you know, have yeah. executives go there and have, you know, the videos like professionally produced. And, and I think there's just something in this authenticity of, you know, that, like I said, prior, we're like sending the kits to executives homes and, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing their environment and seeing maybe their dog, you know, come in and some even bring, you know, their family in and, say hello and things like that. I, I just don't see that going away. I mean, that that I think is, is gonna be here to stay. Having just kind of much more of these casual dialogues. I, I you know, was in a, a we started, you know, it was a, a coffee virtually where we send Starbucks cards to employees at their home. 
and they're invited to a virtual coffee, you know, with the executive on a much smaller scale, as opposed to the larger, you know, events we would maybe have in the past. And so I see those kind of trends happening. And we were even asking employees, God, they're get, it was such good dialogue and questions. And the leader asked, why aren't you asking these questions at the town halls? And they were saying, well, because, I mean, they're so big and, you know, just not as comfortable. Totally, yeah. So I, I see that as being a lot more work for our team <laughs> in the past as we have to then, you know, potentially connect the smaller teams as opposed to the larger. And I think we have to also look to, look to ways to virtually connect people. If I look to our ERGs and things, ERGs being employee resource groups, which are a way for, you know, our LGBTQ community, Black and African American colleagues, Hispanic, Latina, et cetera, persons with disabilities, you know, we're now using a portal and sort of a collaborative tool on how those employees can connect within the company, but within subgroups. And so I think you're going to see a lot more of of these types of sort of virtual ways of teams connecting, as opposed to in the past, maybe they would have had networking events and things like that. And when we're all, you know, through this pandemic, I'm sure those things will continue, but I don't see the other things of connecting going away. I just see that like being here to stay. Yeah. Making you both, Marjorie and and Jerry, you both have been talking about making these organizations more personal and human. I think that is such, so necessary and overdue in, mm-hmm. in, in particularly big companies. Yeah, another aspect of, of, of the research, Marjorie, identifies some of the challenges communicators themselves are facing in, in what's identified as the next normal, including the need for more resources and new competencies. It even says that some communicators are burning out. Uh, talk a little bit about what you guys saw as you interviewed people in terms of this question of burning out as well as the challenges that communicators are faced with? Well, I think communicators were still human beings, right? And (laughs) despite our... uh, Some Marjorie, not not everybody. Our superhero uh, (laughs) status and aspirations, but... Your cape is in the closet. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But we've all in the same along with all of humanity, been experiencing the same sort of dystopian experiences of this past year, all while at the same time being in a job that has every day, every week brought new issues or challenges, significant things that we have to help the organization navigate through. Some of them are incredibly difficult. And I thought Sherry gave some beautiful examples of like, all these additional things mm-hmm. that that we're doing as organizations to help create that that authenticity, that humanity, but the other things didn't go away, right? So all of that is still happening, and and that's an incredible load for a, a comms team to to carry. I think two things I've been impressed with and hopeful about in the future. One is, I think it's really remarkable how quickly mental health has become a part of the corporate expectation. Mm-hmm. And that that's part of our vocabulary and that that's part of what 
how companies have risen up to help all of their employee base. And I think that that's something really hopeful will continue um, and that we'll get even better and more sophisticated about. I think the other thing about the burnout issue is we have to help our teams imagine and focus and have the space to think about what's next and, and what's possible. And we're so buried in the today but as leaders of our teams, we, we've got to create and make some space for some light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, whether that light at the end of the tunnel is 200 feet away or 200 miles away, we don't really know, but we have to create that light and we have to have some space to that. I think there's exciting moments right now where there's really the potential to reimagine so much of how we work and how we live and to give our teams a little bit of space to, to have that time to imagine what if we might not imagine it the way it's actually going to be and it may change, but, but we need that hope and that, that in space for innovation and creation to go alongside all of the, the really tough baggage that we've, we've got to haul through every single yeah. day. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that, that a lot of organizations I know are attempting to reimagine as we come through the pandemic and as we've seen cases of institutional racism and political unrest, and even sort of the, the, the changing demographics and generational changes, is, is this whole notion around the need to change corporate narrative. You know, given changing expectations of various stakeholders. Let me ask both of you, do, do, do companies have to fundamentally change how they describe themselves and what they do? And does this also hold true for agencies? Maybe Cherry, you go first and then Marjorie. So Mike, when we look to corporate narratives, I, I see the main shift happening is we're not only looking at the product that we offer, we're looking at the societal impact we make equally. That's the biggest shift I see at the moment and, and in some of the trends that I see and in the work that we're doing is, is really fundamentally having to evaluate the actions also that back up those claims that are made and the the value proposition and narrative that's and the story that's told behind that and and i think it's important that we look to the the proof points that are necessary behind that as well so that we also don't go too far off of our our brand and where where you are but that you're able to bring the brand in the in the right direction in the future marjorie i think we actually have to flip the whole idea of narrative on its head. And we're talking even about how we do sessions with clients to help them conduct their narrative and put it together. And Gary, I think you used a phrase about something about kind of thinking about the words or moving the words around kind mm -hmm. of thing. And, and we talk about narrative and then what are the actions that support that? And the sort of old way of doing narrative was coming up with the aspirational language and then coming up with the bullet points, the proof points <laughs> behind it, right? And I think narrative is going to be about flipping those on its head. What are the actions that you've taken? What are the actions that you're willing to take? And then what's the narrative that you can actually earn and credibly put out there forward? So 
I think I'm even imagining that in the workshops we do, we focus on action first and then narrative second after that. And the, the second piece of that is I think we've got to get more specific in our narratives. We've plunged into all of this, even slightly going in pre-pandemic with like the business roundtable statements and things like that, with a lot of companies having very generic value statements. We will take care of our community. Mm-hmm. Well, that can mean a lot of different things. And that can mean completely opposite things when it comes to some of these tough societal questions that we're facing. And so we're going to have to get really specific about what does taking care of the community mean? What is your position on things, these societal issues, whether it's guns or racial reckoning or police reform or sustainability and things like that. And the last thing I'll say that we've seen that has changed is that CEOs who, new CEOs who are taking the seat right now are expected to be talking about societal issues, sustainability issues, employee culture in their first 100 days. And those are things that were not part of the CEO introduction dialogue a couple of years ago. And those are questions they have to be ready coming out of the gates to talk about. And so I just, I I think it's exciting. And those are, you know, I think those are good things that we are all going to be held accountable to talk about. So I just want to say thank you to Cherry and Marjorie. This has been fascinating. The PageUp report is really good. And I'm so proud of PageUp. It has grown so quickly and it's, PageUp pushes page which is something that we wanted. We wanted uh, the, this group to help move us along and change and improve at, at the, at, as members of PAGE. I also want to quickly thank Elliot Mizraki, who runs communications at PAGE, uh, for a- asking you to do this, both of you, because I bugged him about the report when I saw it. And Elliot said, only if, Gary, you also plug his podcast, the new CCO podcast that Paige does, which, which is excellent. I usually don't try to, you know, plug competitors here, but in return for you, you two as guests, I, I will do it. So Marjorie and Cherry, thank you very much for being on the Crux. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.